Hi, everyone. I'm Kara Scott, and welcome to this episode of The Heart of Poker, sponsored by 8 at 8 Poker. If you're new to the podcast, I use a modified set of increasingly personal questions developed by psychologists 25 years ago. They had total strangers ask them of each other, and the theory was, with the increased intimacy, the strangers might then fall in love. Now, I've shortened the list of questions for time, and I've updated some of them, but otherwise, this is what they came up with as a shortcut to get to know someone on a deeper level fast. And I'm here to help you all fall in love with my next guest. Ali Najad is an accomplished broadcaster, both in and out of our game. Of course, he's a poker player, but he's also one of the most recognizable voices for TV poker commentary, and he's worked on all the greats. Poker After Dark, NBC Heads Up, the World Series, and he's one half of a much-loved duo with Nick Shulman on various Poker Ghost shows. So thanks for coming on, Ali. Of course, my pleasure. Excited. Good to hear your voice. Now, I think we both know that poker and TV audiences in general can be very, very critical sometimes. So what's it like to have your work with Nick be so widely loved by the poker audience? It's it's a little surprising because I confess going back almost two decades that when I first began doing commentary and every now and again, you'll go back and I, I would assume that I'm not the only one that does this and you search for, um, you know, your name and just to see, well, take the temperature of the public and the general pulse and make sure that, you know, your work is being received in a way that's consistent with what you would hope, um, audiences would, would regard it as. And I've dug deep into like some Mm -hmm. of the, the forums from way back in the day. And I mean, it Oof. is a 180 degree shift practically from <laughs> what I remember uh, general sentiment being in the beginning. And it's a wonder I didn't jump off a roof based on some of the Ugh. things that were being said back then. But I think uh, what kind of helps is that uh, my career working in entertainment goes back into, you know, when I was 16, 17 years old. And so it mm-hmm. really gave me an opportunity to recognize that if your skin's not thick, you're not going to be able to cut it. Um, in this industry, because just auditioning and being rejected in that way, which is very part and parcel to the process, um, is something you learn to cope with. And I think also just uh, my dad, uh, a long time ago, just kind of made me recognize that there are those who are going to decide that they don't like you for any number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they'll come over and be like, I hate black hair. And what are you going to do? Get <laughs> in an argument? Or somebody comes up and says, hey, the sky is green. And like, what are you going to do? Try to correct that person. So um, Mm. it's a little self-serving to presume that it's all on the other people who are critical. And I think sometimes we need to to bear in mind that while there are many trolls and those trolls lead us to be very apathetic about general sentiment in in the public sphere, um, that some of the criticisms are valid. And there's certainly been Mm. people who were not fans of mine who had things to say. And I was like, well, you know what? He's kind of right about that. And so that those are the ones that kind of help shape you. Um, and, uh, but you can't let all the noise get through, right? You have to just Mm kind of be yourself and, and let the chips fall where they may for lack of a better way to put it. Yeah. I always found that when, I mean, when I started, a lot of the comments were absolutely horrific as well. The same kind of thing. I think people don't like what's new. Maybe we don't yeah. trust it as much, you know? <laughs> in my so, case, maybe it's old because I've just been doing it too long. But, <laughs> but certainly with Nick, pairing up with Nick has been has been terrific. I mean, yeah. our knowledge of one another and our sort of acquaintanceship, now more friendship, um, dates back a long time. I mean, we used to rumble mm. in the online streets with one another. And, um, you know, so we, you know, we, we just go back. We have, I don't know. Uh, a complimentary personality to one another and you know what he brings as far as high level analysis and insight and understanding and mm. his capacity to sort of uh, bridge the gap between appealing to the insiders so to speak who can be yeah. very critical 
And then also recognizing the bigger picture, which is that there is the lay person who doesn't necessarily have that depth of knowledge, but also wants to be exposed to just how much nuance there is in the game and articulating mm-hmm. that succinctly and effectively and unpretentiously, most importantly, I think, with a comedic slant and, and allowing me to kind of run wild and, and be a foil of sorts um, mm-hmm. has just been magical. And I got to tell you, I desperately want to get him to work with me on things outside of just our TV poker commentary, you know, oh, yeah. podcast or even taking him outside of poker and, um, and trying to create content with one another that that's spans beyond that. Cause his interests don't lie simply in poker. Mm-hmm. Um, have, it's been really frustrating because he, you know, he's currently deep into chess and he's deep into, you know, poker at all times, learning and studying <laughs> and then playing at these nosebleed stakes, which are going to be more fiscally lucrative, at least up front than uh, any of the other things that we'd have to do, which would be more sweat mm. equity, as, as I'm sure you're learning, right? Yeah. Yeah. It can be tough to catch someone's eye when there's so much going on and, and you know, his personal life as well. It's yeah, there's, he's a, a, there's a lot to do with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to start off with our first set of questions. The first one, it starts pretty general. Uh, it's really a bit of background. The original question in the study was, Take four minutes and tell your partner as much of your life story as possible, but obviously I'm not going to hold you to four minutes, but can you just give us some of the highlights, the story of, you know, young Ali? Young Ali, goodness. Um, As far back as I can remember, I have been a big old extrovert and loved making people laugh. And I distinctly remember that in elementary school, um, while my marks were always really high, the teachers always had some issues with me and the issues revolved around me distracting those who were around me. And (laughs) it was a little bit of a function. And I say this not in a self-aggrandizing way, but I didn't find school particularly challenging. And I went Mm -hmm. to public school. I didn't go to private school and it was a good public school, but for whatever reason, I don't know if it was the curriculum or if it was me um, or some combination of the two, I'm guessing I just didn't feel particularly challenged. And so I would get bored and then I would start to engage my classmates in mischief. And so mm-hmm. they, the way that they had to combat this is to distribute my mayhem equally by moving me around the classroom physically throughout the course of the semester. <laughs> and everybody would have their, you know, one week of not being able to focus because I was there <laughs> and I wanted to, to goof off. And eventually they, they scooted me up a year um, for some classes like math and, and I think reading um, whatever you call that now, what is it? English? I don't know, but, uh, in any yeah. case, um, that, uh, that theme I think kind of continued, uh, all the way throughout high school and my first, um, sort of foray into working in what is now my career was hosting the high school video yearbook. I got into the class. It was an elective, um, my junior year, I want to say, and uh, boy, those are some lost tapes. I think I have a VHS somewhere around here, and it is uh, cringeworthy <laughs> how much of a cool guy I was trying to be in the slang and the dress and all of it. But, oh, I want to um, see that. But yeah, it was uh, <laughs> it was you know it was my first kind of experience actually channeling all of that energy into something that might ultimately prove to be a line of work, and I got put up. Uh, by a bunch of my friends when a, a local youth magazine show that was airing on the NBC affiliate um, lost their male host to go and audition for this job. And I thought, mm-hmm. ah, yeah, okay, whatever, I'll do it. Because I was doing PA work for 
the school, you know, announcement system. I was doing the video yearbook. I was doing girls volleyball. I was doing football and um, having a blast doing all of that. And so I went in thinking this will be a piece of cake. And I was surrounded by people who had resumes and headshots. And I mean, they were young, but they were taking it seriously. And I felt like I had a jumbo crayon and I was writing, I like soccer on like a <laughs> little questionnaire because really that's what it boiled down to. And uh, I think in part me sort of not being concerned with what I thought they wanted and just being myself because I had nothing else really to go with was resonating with the producers and thousands of applicants from around the, you know, San Francisco huh. Bay area were whittled down to hundreds, were whittled down to dozens, were whittled down to two or three. And then I got the job and I was like, Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't really expect <laughs> to get the job. I think deep down. And it was a little <laughs> anxious moment where I was like, uh, now I got to grow up. And I did kind of, because it, it was in, you know, an adult working environment and I was just a knucklehead, you know? Hmm. And, um, so it's not as though it stripped me of my youth, but it certainly, uh, it made me kind of get a little bit more serious and I'm still not serious, but you can imagine how much worse <laughs> it would have been had I not been reined in on some levels. And unlike most of the people who would move on when they graduated high school and went to college, I stayed local to go to UC Berkeley. And so I was given the opportunity to continue to host their content, um, through college and, uh, I remember one specific uh, day, the the show had been nominated for for an Emmy, um, and there was a write up in the Daily Californian, which was the the school newspaper. And I come walking out of class, not realizing that they had aired that or printed that article that day. And I I could have sworn I had a four and a half foot piece of toilet paper hanging off the back <laughs> of my foot as I went through like the main quad area of school. And and then I grabbed a copy like I always did and saw my picture on the front. And I was like, uh-oh, there's the first taste huh. of real celebrity and fame. In high school, it was kind of whatever, but it was uh, it was peculiar. Um, and I, I, I mean, obviously a little narcotic at that age. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, you know, um, I How did you deal with it at that age? You know, I mean, not well, I'm guessing. Yeah. You know, there wasn't a tremendous amount of humility because – <laughs> I think at that age, in a huge public university where there's tens of thousands of people, anything that you can do to stand out, anything that you can do to to kind of establish some popularity or some value, especially as you're looking to flirt and meet all kinds of girls and, and have fun and do what you're supposed to do in your late teens, early 20s, hmm. uh, is a huge asset, I think. So I really took it and ran with it. Um, wasn't, you know, wasn't who I am today about it, that's for sure. Mm. And I had a fraction of anything to show for, for a career. But, um, but you know, I think that's the learning curve and the learning experience. Um, and I think the thing that really was the big turning point for me, and I've, I've talked about it on a couple of occasions recently with Julio on the poker, um, card player rather, po podcast, mm -hmm. I think. And then once a long, long time ago in an article that um, when ESPN was still really involved in the World Series of Poker more heavily, uh, one of their writers um, had done, but it was my sophomore year of college in 1998. And I had actually um, gotten an opportunity to go out to work for MTV in New York. Hmm. And um, it was going to be a pretty big deal. And I was seeing someone at the time and she was a year older and she was going to be graduating um, soon. And during winter break, uh, she was from Southern California, so she would drive down to, to the LA area, and um, a lot of us from Northern California would go visit. We'd drive down, um, and I was going to surprise her with the news. And I'd actually 
spent uh it's this one's pretty heavy but uh i had spent the night at her sorority because most of the girls had left and so you could kind of sneak in and um and in the morning she mentioned that she thought she might be pregnant and obviously that was big big news for me and i was like okay Mm -hmm. but you know i was very much head over heels and thought to myself well how fortunate i am to actually have uh, a means to make a little money and and Mm -hmm. uh, a career sort of lined up and whatever you want to do i'm happy to do that and uh she was leaving to go to LA and she was going to go, um, her name was Sharon Ma and she, uh, was going to go on this trip with her ex-boyfriend that they had already booked and paid for with a big group of friends because she and him were still friends. And of course Mm -hmm. that concept at the age of 20 was one that didn't sit well with me as a, you know, possessive (laughs) and jealous and, you know, headstrong young man or boy, I should say. Um, and so I remember being a little cross with her. Um, and, uh, And as she was saying goodbye, um, she was giving me this big hug and kept saying the words, I don't want to leave you. Hmm. And I remember after the sixth or seventh time that she repeated that, I found it really strange. And I kind of physically, you know, plied myself away and was like, what are you talking about? Like, we're going to see each other in a little while. I'll come down to LA. And she just kind of looked back at me blank. And I thought, I found it weird at the time, Um, Hmm. far more weirder after the rest of the story comes out. But um, I remember also walking across the street to my car and because I was upset, um, you know, I, I was just going to get in my car and leave and not, not look back or anything like that. And I am one of these people that is very rooted in like what I can touch, taste, feel, hear, and see as much as possible, like pragmatism, you know, the real mm-hmm. realm and, uh, you know, prove it to me with science and things like that. And, uh, there was like a voice, I guess, for lack of a better way to describe it, that like very sternly said, turn around. Hmm. And I remember thinking, I don't want to turn around because I'm pissed off. And so I'm not going to turn around. And then I kept walking and I got closer to my car. And then it really struck me and was like, turn around. And it meant business, whatever it was. And I feel silly even describing that because it is like, I can't explain it. I just can't. And it's not some retrospective varnish upon which I'm going to be, you know, painting right. in order to create poignance or significance out of it. But in the moment, this was exactly how it was. And so I said, okay. And I turned around and I just caught a glimpse of her driving away and rounding the corner in her car. She was going to pick up her best friend, Kelly, and drive down to LA. And, um, and so uh, later that evening, I was out with my friends and we were in San Francisco and we went out to some 18 and up club or something like that. Danced, had a good time, whatever. Uh, and nobody was drunk because we weren't even drinking age. And I don't think, you know, at the venue, you couldn't get any, any uh, alcohol. And we were driving back right. across the Bay Bridge to the East Bay where campus was. And I remember seeing like the same way that I'm staring at the four walls of the room I'm standing in right now, as real as that is, hmm. a burned out chassis of a very specific car, like an early 90s Volkswagen Jetta. And I remember it being so strange to see no one around it, no sign of fire or smoke, no cones, no flares, no cops, nothing. But it was in the shoulder and it was just on this on-ramp to the Bay Bridge. I remember thinking, God, that's awfully strange. And when we get to the restaurant, the eight people that I was with, we sit down and I look around at everybody. I was like, oh, dude, did you guys see that burned out car? As like a young, excitable guy, you know, and we were really right. into cars and whatnot. And it was just something unique. And I got seven blank stares back at me 
all of which were like, what are you talking about? What car? And it's not the kind of thing you could have missed, right? Yeah. That's interesting. And then the following day, I didn't really think anything of it until the following day when I got a phone call from her family saying, hey, is she still with you? And I said, Uh. no. And my heart sank instantly. And um, they said, well, she never made it last night. And I just, I knew something awful had happened on account of the fact that she was so responsible. And so they began calling, you know, highway patrol stations up and down I-5, which she had been driving until they found one that said, we've been waiting for this phone call Mm. because somebody crossed over into oncoming traffic and their fuel tank and the one in the other car were both full and there was a big explosion and a fire and we were unable to recover license plates and VIN numbers and, and remains like there's just nothing. And, uh, so that was the moment where they get, well, what time did she leave? And this is what time this happened. And that's about where she should have been. And, you know, it wasn't confirmed, Mm -hmm. but obviously we all kind of suspected, okay, that's probably what happened. And, um, there's a, there's more to it. So it was her, her friend Kelly, potentially an unborn child, and mm-hmm. and uh, her mom. When the coroner confirmed things via dental records, um, took her own life because she was just too distraught uh. over it. And it was all way too much for a silver spooner like myself to that point in life to really process. It's and, a lot for anyone to process that. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of grief. Tons. I mean, and I never foresaw the day where I would be able to talk about it and not just be wildly, you know, in tears and whatnot. But we're talking 24 years ago Mm -hmm. uh, at this point, 1998, 23 years ago. So um, when, and to add to kind of the, you know, mysticism of it, the week before it happened, I actually dreamed that she passed away in a car accident, which is super spooky and weird and inexplicable. And I remember that I was so distraught over the notion that I couldn't find her after the car accident in my dream. And I was saying her name in my sleep and it woke her. And I remember saying, um, Hey, uh, well, she, she was like, Hey, I'm here. Hey, I'm here. And I still didn't know if I was asleep or I was awake or what was going on, but I could tell like I had found her and, um, and, I just said, promise me you'll never leave me because the the panic and the fear and that sense of anxiety was just so acute. Um, and she was never one to just say anything. So she just kind of took it under advisement, was thinking, was being quiet. And then she came back and said, I promise. Mm-hmm. And I remember when it happened thinking really um, back to that and how you broke your promise is all I was so fixated mm-hmm. on. And um come to understand it differently in the months, weeks, and, and even years that passed it, just because they're no longer here in the physical realm doesn't mean that they're not with you in some way, shape, or form. Um, and whether right. that's all the product of our silly perceptions and need to create order out of chaos, which is effectively what the world is in some ways, um, or some real uh, spiritual thing that exists, I couldn't say definitively, and I'm certainly mm-hmm. not here to, to uh, indoctrinate anyone or to... Uh, force, you know, my notions of what's going on out there onto anyone at all, but rather just share them in the hope that they'll, you know, um, help someone in some way or, or be a a shared experience that makes them go, okay, I'm not crazy. Um, but you know, I certainly felt as though, okay, that, that, that person is still around through things that, that happened, um, 
afterward. Yeah. But what's interesting as it ties back to poker, Kara, is that I didn't play poker after we started dating because she had lost her father prior to her birth. Um, he gambled away everything the family had and had a heart attack. And she had really strong feelings about that. And so when she broke her promise, as I was desperately looking for some way to synthesize the the grief, hmm. um, as someone who doesn't drink, doesn't has never done any drugs, never really been drunk, never um, smoked a cigarette, don't drink hmm. coffee, um, and certainly didn't want to take any of the prescription medications that therapists were trying to suggest right. that I get on. Poker was a 24-7 outlet for me to go and in all of its glorious self-centricity, uh, take vengeance upon the world as a young 20-something for continuing to spin uh, around the sun because it, life was done for me, right? It was all over. Like, why are you guys laughing? Why do you have the audacity to get up and, and go do things? Don't you know? Um, mm. And uh, and the poker table was where a lot of that angst was directed. And admittedly, it was a self-destructive endeavor at first. I would go to bed hoping, asking not to wake up in the morning. I'd dial the first three numbers of her phone number and uh, before I realized no one's going to pick up. And it took years before I could delete the answering machine message, which was like the last sort of physical, any you know remnant that I had. Yeah. Um, and, I, and sometimes I still wonder why the hell did I do that? What was I proving? It would be <laughs> yeah. cool to go back and still hear that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, um, thankfully... You know, I, I ended up bumping into Prahlad Friedman and Eric Lindgren at Casino San Pablo up in Northern California, and they were endeavoring as young men to to play professionally. And mm-hmm. I was one of very few other people under the age of, you know, 60 years old in the card room at that time, <laughs> a very distinctly old demographic. And so um, they helped me kind of take it a little more seriously. And the game was far easier then than it is now, as, you know, we started tinkering with new ideas and, and mm-hmm. being aggressive and not passive and and uh, within the span of a year or two, I want to say I went from playing $2, $4 stud limit poker to playing all the way up to like 400, 800, and, and mm-hmm. eventually 800, 1600 limit hold'em was the biggest game I ever played. And, wow. And uh, yeah, and it was on a cruise ship with uh, Maury Escandani in the early 2000s when I, I had my materials with me that I, uh, I kind of caught his eye and he was telling me a 75150 game about how he was going to start doing poker on TV. And, huh. and I started talking to him and we both kind of thought we were chirping as many people do and embellishing and whatnot at the poker table <laughs> until he put my demo reel in, in a VHS, you know, uh, player at his, in his suite and, and, uh, looked over at me in bewilderment and was like, you're what I've been looking for. And <laughs> like somebody who knows poker, but also knows television. And, uh, it has been the one, sort of type of content that has most consistently been available for me to, to mm. work within uh, throughout the arc of my career. And uh, it's weird because sometimes I feel like I have one foot in one foot out because I fear that hurling myself fully into, into doing, you know, poker as the vertical in the entertainment industry would cause me to, to, you know, forego so many of the other things that I really would mm. like to do and have done. Um, and lose that connection to the industry at large. Um, and mm-hmm. I haven't really allowed it to be um, kind of a, a viable part of, of my career as far as my own sense of success is concerned, because mm-hmm. all I keep thinking is if I wasn't on that cruise ship, because Eric won a couple of seats to a party poker millions <laughs> tournament that happened that year, you know, and, 
and brought my demo reel, you know, then, then what would I be doing right now? You right. know? And, and I remember when I went out for the raw deal, the segment that Tony Dunst hosted before he moved on to, to mm-hmm. do commentary. And I think Phil Helmuth now, now does some work on, um, and not getting that job. I was so despondent because I was like, listen, if I can't book a gig that effectively the breakdown Mm. is we need a Persian guy whose initials are AN who knows poker and lives on Wilshire Boulevard. Like that's the the specificity to which I felt that breakdown was. And I'm like, if I can't book that gig, then I just don't, I don't have what it takes. And I sat and played video games in my, in my apartment for like 30 days. Like I played Halo till, I would fall asleep with a controller in my hand over and over because I was so depressed about it. But, uh, but yeah, like it. Um, anyway, I'm meandering and giving you. But you said the life thing, so I'm like, this okay. Is, well, yeah, this is exactly what the podcast is. But I, you know, I don't want to kind of gloss over that incredible amount of grief that you dealt with at a very oh, young yeah. age because that is um, that's something that obviously stays with a person for the rest mm. of their life as well. Sure. And you know, I don't know the situation exactly obviously nobody can know someone else's pain but having lost someone that i loved as well young Mm -hmm. and in a very shocking way Mm -hmm. i do know that the process of dealing with that pain and the grief it can take a really long time and it can go through cycles as well you know you you, things get better and then you go through it again and it's kind of more of a an upward spiral is something that i was told you know grief can be an upward spiral you just have to keep going through the same thing over and over again so um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you were able to let the grief lead you towards something so positive for your yeah, life. Ultimately. Right. I remember going to lunch with a cousin of mine who I want to say between a year and two years removed from it, um, said, I think you're ready to hear something. And I was like, okay, what is it? He goes, I'm glad Sharon passed away. And I was like, what are wow. you talking about? What a horrible thing to say. He said, no, hear me out. I'm not, not on the face says, but I worry about who you would have been had this not happened. Hmm. And it struck me, he said, dude, you were something else, you know, I mean, to, to put it kindly, you know, just, just a brash and, and boisterous, hmm. and, you know, self-absorbed and, and, uh, you know, just who I see now with all of this perspective and all of this kind of, you know, this, this contrast to that person, I like a lot better. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow. That's really interesting. And then another one that that was much closer to when it happened that I got, I was down in Los Angeles for the funeral and I was staying with family there. And my aunt, for you know, lack of a better way to describe her, really close friends of my of my parents growing up from the time they were kids, saw me. I was like, uh, I was just wallowing and I was I was in tears and I was really sad. And she'd seen me be that way for like days on end mm-hmm. while I'd been with her waiting for the services and whatnot. And, and she goes, uh, enough. And I was thinking to myself, enough, it should, this just happened. She said, enough. I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, I've been with your uncle for decades. And, you know, having grown up back in Iran as a youngster, you don't date a whole lot of people. It's kind of that person that, that comes to your house with their family mm-hmm. and asks for your hand in marriage. And, then you say, okay, and you don't have perspective, right? Mm-hmm. And she said, I'm not sure that I've ever felt what obviously you felt and feel for this person. Mm. And she said, do you know how lucky you are? 
And I, it really struck me. And it was, I was embarrassed a little bit. And I was like, wow, that's a, that's a different way to look at this. Huh. And fast forward at least you know, 15 years, I'm, I'm sitting on a flight from Houston to LA. And what's funny about this is, you know, in the years that, that followed, I kind of developed this notion that even if it's bullshit, that there are no coincidences. I just would rather believe that there are no coincidences that every little one of these things that you want to think is just random, you can tie into something. And maybe it's all a game we play in our heads to create meaning, right? Mm -hmm. It could be. Um, But even if that's true, right? it doesn't take away from what it means to the person. Yeah. Even if it's complete BS and there's not really some, you know, uh, spiritual thing that we can't put our finger on that is Mm -hmm. involved in this process, if it helps me get through life in a happier way- What's wrong with that? Because it's certainly not coming at the expense of other people, right? Because right. if it's like substance abuse or something like that, well, that helps me get through life in a better way. <laughs> I'm not all for that because there's a lot of people that incur pain, including yourself on some level, mm. um, you know, with that type of stuff. So this is one of those innocent ways to, to get through things better. There was this flight. I was on a connection. This is when I was working for ESPN on this college football show. I would travel every single week during the football season to shoot. And, you know, um, it was a longer layover. And there's lots of flights, you know, there was at least two flights, I think, that were before. And I tried to stand by for one and I didn't get on. I tried to stand by for the other and I couldn't mm-hmm. get on. And then I, I wanted to switch seats in this one. And it was as though, nope, you're going to be in this seat on this flight this day. <laughs> I was like, okay. So I get on the plane and being kind of a, a road warrior, you develop the habit of not disturbing those around you. You just assume, hey, you know, you're flying, I'm flying. And I'll just put my headphones on and mind my business and then we'll land. And just because we're sitting next to each other doesn't obligate us to, to interact. Mm-hmm. And a guy comes and sits down and, um, and he starts to engage me in a little conversation and, uh, you know, I keep it very short and it's very typical. And then suddenly he kind of, kind of begins to talk about how he, he'd just come from the hospital and his wife was having a procedure and then tells me that she didn't make it. And I'm like, my God, like, uh, this is so heavy. And this is just who does this? Mm-hmm. And then I kept thinking to myself, like, okay, well, first off, this person's in a really vulnerable place. Second off, you know all too well what that's like. Yeah. And third off, insofar as like one of my definitions of success, and not that I was looking upon this as an opportunity to be successful, so to speak is a quote that I think is incorrectly attributed to Ralph Waldo Emerson or Thoreau. I don't know. One of the two of them are the ones that are the person that said it, but it, it revolves around leaving the world a little bit better than you found it, whether through, mm-hmm. um, you know, a child smile or a healthy garden patch and enduring the betrayal of false friends and to know even one life has breathed easier because of you, this is to have succeeded. And, and, when I think about why it is, as I get a slightly tangential and I'll come back to the story, um, why it is, that I do what I do for a living. It's because life in general, I really believe is such a struggle from sunup to sundown for Mm. so many people. And while that hasn't really been the case for me, uh, even though I felt that I'm struggling at times, the reality is that the things that I'm considering the struggle Mm. are certainly privileged things to consider struggles. Um, That if, you know, whether it's a, half an hour commuter flight or a lifelong friendship or relationship and platonic romantic, anything in between Um, those with whom I cross paths feel better for that 
moment, um, you know, feel more positive about it. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, if, if that's their takeaway, then I've done something good. And if I can create some sense of escape from that reality that I just talked about through a medium like television or, mm-hmm. you know, wh- whatever entertainment based thing that I'm contributing to, if I have some little privilege or gift that brings laughter and escape from that to people, then, you know, that's what it's all about. And the moment that it, that dawned on me was when I was doing Poker Road Radio with Gavin Smith and Joe Seabach. And I made more mm-hmm. in one weekend working for NBC at the time than I did in an entire year working on that show. And I worked <laughs> way harder on that show too, because I produced it and I wrote it and mm-hmm. I hosted it and I answered the emails and I answered the voicemails. And there was a voicemail from someone who said, Hey, I just wanted to tell you that, um, a week ago, my house, literally, I watched it float down the Mississippi as we flipped a coin in my town and decided we breached this side of the levees. And, um, you know, I, all I have is my dog and my truck and my iPod. And I just threw on some episodes and I laughed for the first time in a week. And I just wanted to say thanks for that. And like, I got so emotional over that. I was like, this dude lost it all. And I made him laugh. And that made him happy enough to actually write something to me and say, thanks. I'm like, how worth it is this? I just, that's all I could think. He's like, how worth it is this? This is so awesome. So recognizing that what brings me a sense of happiness or purpose is that essence sitting next Mm. to this guy as he embarked on this story. I was like, you know, I'm here. It seems so like making myself more important than I believe that I am. But in that particular moment, I felt like I could really do, I was particularly and uniquely situated to do something really good for this guy. And so he tells me the whole story and I'm sitting and I'm listening and he's very down. And I said, enough. And he looked at me and I said, yeah, enough. And this is hours. It would seem removed from him losing his wife. Cause he told me that before she went into the OR She held his hand and she said, hey, in case anything happens, I just want you to know that you have been a phenomenal husband and we have two beautiful kids and I feel so lucky. And Hmm. I said enough to him. I said, do you know how lucky you are? Because there are people who will go the rest of their lives wondering about that. And you don't have to wonder about that because she told you and you guys had all that time together and it sure seems like she was awesome from what you're telling me so don't think about how unlucky you are think about how lucky you are and i said by the way don't think that these words are coming from some original place they're not because all these years ago someone said this to me Mm. and then i told him my thing and we shared a plenty of tears on that flight. That's for sure. Um, I can imagine. Yeah. It was interesting though. It was like, you know, little moments, right? That kind of yeah. stick And things you. come full circle as well. I mean, mm-hmm. to be able to get to a place in your own, you know, in, in your own cycle of grief where you could actually reach out and, and help someone through that initial stage. Mm-hmm. There's also something healing in that, I think, for the person who's giving the comfort. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Huh. Do you find that your reaction to grief now, as you're so, so many years removed from it now, obviously nothing ever goes away entirely, but I mean, the person you are now, when you deal with kind of emotional issues with 
pain from other people or in your own life? Do you think that you are, you know, a very different person dealing with it in a very different way than you would have otherwise? Well, certainly um, on behalf of others, insofar as I recognize how much pressure society puts on us, in, in particular in the social media age, um, mm-hmm. to not share overly intimate things. And I think that's that's a degree of detail, you know, that last 15 minutes that I went through with you, with you mm-hmm. just now um, about my life in those moments that I have never kind of shared with anybody publicly, certainly, right? I mean, I, I yeah. know everybody who's listening to this. Friends who are, you know, of, of whom I count not many, right? Lots of acquaintances, but friends? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, and and um, and I've shared it with them, um, but yeah, uh, it's um, it's one of those things where I'm super empathetic, uh, and realize that there's so much shaming that goes into mm. people doing this, and I also um, I think vulnerability is a really healthy thing, and I think that invariably throughout our formative years and even in our adult years you are going to be hurt. And a lot of people's response to that hurt is to look either, you know, through self-medicating and whether it's, you know, alcohol, quiet alcoholism or, mm-hmm. you know, pill use or recreational drug use, or just even um, being more detached than they otherwise would be in the face of yeah. that pain, um, they withdraw. And it's because they don't want to feel it's fear of feeling those lows. But just in a physical sense, not physical as in touch, taste, tactile, but like scientifically mm. physical sense in, in order to be capable of experiencing all of the wonderful highs that life has to offer, invariably, you have to be able and open enough to then experience the lows, right? Like mm-hmm. love means that if it's not the one that sails off into the sunset, will come with great grief and heartbreak, right? When it's over, yeah. it's just, you know um the way that it is and would we give a shit if it was sunny every day about it being sunny no it's because it rains and because it snows and because it's cold that we appreciate and enjoy and seek vacation you know destinations <laughs> they're sunny right because otherwise we'd be like yeah. oh this is insufferable like and yeah, the dead of summer in vegas is a classic <laughs> example of it. but um but yeah you know so it's kind of a, a necessary thing and i and i truly believe that um i I kind of don't take things as personally as I would have otherwise when I was younger too, because mm-hmm. I, especially when you realize that, okay, I didn't do or say anything to this individual to warrant the reaction or the behavior that I'm encountering. When, when you realize that, what I always ask myself is like, well, what's driving this person to be this way, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what is the aberrant input? What is the stimulus? What is the, you know, the thing that I can attribute you being, it's its almost not to liken human beings to dogs, but when a dog is not being a dog, you're like, well, what happened to this animal? Like, mm-hmm. why is it, you know, so far away from its nature? And there's always an explanation. There's always something that happened, right? Whether it was abused or abandoned or whatever. Mm-hmm. But eventually, as you scroll through your 50th Dodo story on Instagram, like you see <laughs> the theme emerge And you're like, yeah, like impatience and love and tenderness and caring are super disarming things to confront somebody who is being that way toward you with because it's not what they expect. And Mm -hmm. when people need our love and affection the most is when they deserve it the least, right? So when you look past whatever that facade is 
and you ask yourself, well, what's going on behind there that's making you do this? And you approach someone compassionately because you realize like, this isn't you, this isn't who you want to be, you know? Yeah. Um, it really, and, and you can have such a big impact. It really does like shake people. It's jarring. Mm-hmm. And I think that the world would be a better place if we weren't so conditioned to even on the worst day of your life, Kara, if somebody walks up to you and goes, Hey, how are you doing? Just in passing, there's a really good chance you're going to be like, Oh, I'm good. How are you? Yeah. Because it's just what we do. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you were to post about the worst day that you have, because, uh, you know, the human highlight reel that is Instagram or Facebook or whatever <laughs> platform you go to that creates such deep feelings of inadequacy and mm. such, um, you know, uh, a reduction in self-esteem because you either have some digitally doctored rendition of a, of a you know, body archetype, especially mm. as a woman, not that men aren't susceptible to it as well, being, you know, thrust in front of you repeatedly, or you're looking at the best moment of that person's entire life like over and over and over and over again, repeatedly. And, you know, even to the point where it's manufactured, where people will go and rent a private jet fuselage or rent like a studio that has a ton of Instagram backdrops or pretend like there was a documentary on uh, fake famous on Netflix, which was fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's such a potent thing, especially for younger generations to want fame and want significance and to use this platform from that at all costs, whether I'm buying likes or buying followers, whatever. And it Mm. it now is like a toxin in society, I feel like to where, you know, nobody wants to share. You don't say, hey, I cried in the shower this morning and I don't know why. Or, hey, I got laid off. I don't know what I'm going to do to make rent this month. Like that stuff, they're like, oh, TMI, man, TMI. Yeah. Or, you know, it's like you're soliciting attention, like, oh, get over yourself. Yes. Right? So it's like you're damn exactly. you don't. But what if we realized that the universal experience, like for people, involves those moments? And it's yeah. not that they're soliciting attention, but rather that they're creating a, a, a different sort of rhetoric out there to help cut through this thick fog of <laughs> my life is wonderful. And draw some perspective and realize like, hey, yeah, I feel that way too sometimes. Or yeah, I got dumped today too. Or I got laid off today too or fired. Or I'm anxious about this too. So, but the problem is that everyone is conditioned to be tough and to be strong, you know, in particular. Mm. Show no weakness because weakness is actually in some ways considered vulgar. You know, that is like the actual taboo is to see someone's real weakness, not feigned weakness, but actual real weakness. And I... I think that is so toxic. It's a, such a toxic way to relate to each other as human beings. Oh God, yes. And so, what I came up with to kind of put it in a nutshell, and um, it's uh, it's a shame. There was also a quote from B.J. Nemeth, who we we both know and love, um, that I had pinned to the top of my Twitter, and I'm not sure what happened to it. It disappeared. I definitely didn't ever unpin it. Um, but I think that one was it. Uh, completely freaks me out that the total randomness of chance. Uh, brought me better places than my best decision making, which isn't related <laughs> to exactly what we're talking about. But as I'm thinking about these little quotes, and it doesn't freak me out because I think it's awesome. And if it weren't that way, and everything was a foregone conclusion, we would be bored to pieces. So yeah. you know, the happiest mice are the ones that push the little pedal in the experiment. They get zapped sometimes, they get nothing sometimes, they get cheese sometimes. And if you're like <laughs> all three of those, you're probably going to be happier than if it was all cheese or all electrocution or all nothing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And the other one, which relates to what we're just talking about, which I came up with on my own, was that vulnerability requires far more strength mm-hmm. than the thinly veiled facade of toughness. Yeah. And I think toughness is what so many people are conditioned to think they need to put out there. And I just think it's such a shame because you think that that's what real strength is, but it's not. It's just you it's scared to pieces to let your you know 
to let your weaknesses show or to, you know, talk about like what you and I are talking about right now, because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, however many strangers out there in the world in all corners are going to know this about me now. And what does that yeah. mean? Well, hopefully it means that they'll go, man, I can relate because I lost somebody or man, I, I feel that way about life too. And I get insecure, I get anxious and whatever. Mm-hmm. Cause on the outside looking in, if you scroll through even my Instagram feed and I, you know, I, I put food and travel and all these, you know, terrific experiences, but I try to be as authentic as possible. You see me on a private jet, please know I didn't pay for it. Like, and it's not because I'm an influencer either. I happen to have a friend who works in that industry who has empty jets going around sometimes. How lucky am I? Or yeah. you know, if I'm going to a restaurant, like, and okay, it's amazing, whatever. Yes, I, I did pay for whatever, but I'm not thinking to myself, like, this makes me better than you or cooler yeah. than you. And if maybe you're not able to experience that, then this is just me hoping that I can share it with you so you can live vicariously, not to make myself seem cooler or better or more important by any stretch, you know, because hmm. that's the part of social media I think that sucks so much. And when you ask kids nowadays what they want to be when they grow up and they say influencer or famous, that's so disgusting to me. I'm like, why don't you worry about being someone who is good enough at what they do to become famous within that field to then subsequently have influence rather than trying to skip over that part of it altogether and manufacture Mm -hmm. and fabricate some sense of significance? Because I got news for you, that too will pass and will fade. And then what do you have left? Yeah. Right? I wish I could hit the big red Instagram is dead button and <laughs> even Twitter is dead button just so I could see chaos. You think the walking dead has some really intense scenes? Like wait uh-huh. till you see what happens if if you turn it all off, right? Yeah. Like it would be a real social experiment. I think people would realize the degree to which this is a net negative on us. This, this yeah. whole thing, you know? I think it's hard for us. I think a lot of people are finding it very difficult to, to deny that at this point but we just don't care enough to do something about it, which is, I think even worse because we can't, we can't say that we don't see it. We can see what the impact is on, on our lives and on the lives of younger people, especially, you know, but we just haven't realize that it's a big charade and it's, you know, all smoke and mirrors. Well, not all, like there's some people. Well, maybe they'll actually realize better than we did though, because they're growing up in it. They might actually become a generation that is, a bit more cynical about what they see and maybe a little bit more media savvy in terms of being able to parse what is real and what is bias. And I mean, that's my hope. (laughs) I've got to have some kind of hope about it. Because look, Friendster is no more. I don't know who goes on MySpace anymore. (laughs) And at some point, some point, something will come along to dethrone, you know, maybe Facebook, maybe Instagram. Feels hard, you know, and impossible right now, but Lord knows there's people out there in the lab cooking it up, but it's just, we have to hope that what they're cooking up is not something that further extends upon the the foundations of what these, (sighs) you know, algorithms are doing, which is looking to capture our attention and make us stare at our screens and, and the terrifying prospect as a parent, it it was always a terrifying prospect, but as a parent of, you know, a young girl, that's a, it's, it's something that I definitely think about. But yeah. you know what? I wish we'd had this conversation 10 years ago. I'll be honest. Uh, we've known each other for years at this point, And I don't know. I, I definitely know you on a very different level than I ever have. So oh. I really appreciate how open you've been about this. This is, okay. um, I think there's a lot of really amazing lessons to be learned from people's lives. And that's part of the whole idea of the podcast. So thank you so, so much for doing this. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. Hmm. And then we'll have to have, you know, a follow-up conversation and, 
And uh, yeah, when we actually see each other in person again, if work ever starts to happen, because <laughs> I'm still know. hoping that at some point I'll be in Vegas again. Who knows? I know. Yeah, it's tough. No, I remember covering for you when you were having a little one that year that you had <sighs> from, for the summer. And yeah, um, you know, I thought that would be the only World Series that I would miss. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, who could imagine the world without a world uh, series, right? I mean, it's yeah. just such a fixture. Uh, what could possibly happen that would prevent that? Well, how about a pandemic? Anyways. Yeah, but, um, that'll do know. it. Yeah. And let's hope that this is, you know, the last one and that we don't have mm-hmm. another one in our lifetimes, but I don't know. I hope so. It seems like more of a, could be a new normal, right? Maybe we'll have more of these things. I hope not, but yeah. I'm, uh, I hope not too, but I hope we've learned the lessons that we can from it. So, you know be smart yeah. as a species and actually evolve. That would be, that would be a good thing. Learn yeah. from our mistakes and move forward. Yeah. 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 And there's tons of mistakes and there's yeah, there certainly real are. real embarrassment that I, I have as a member of the species from time to time when I've <laughs> to yeah, some same. things, right? Like I've had my moments of contributing to the, the species embarrassment for sure. If you know, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, it's uh it's a little disheartening, but look, we can't, you know, it's not all gloom and doom and, and no, it's not. I really look forward to the next time I'm back there and I know it will happen. And it's just a matter of, you know, being a little bit patient and learning what I can through this time. And yeah, we'll see each other again. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm certainly looking forward to it, but obviously it's, it's, uh, through zoom meetings and, you know, Mm -hmm. video chats and and podcasts and everything in between, right. It's an all digital friendship for now, Kara. Okay. Well, that's, that's all we can hope. That's all we can ask for. All right. Well, again, I want to say thank you for doing this with me because honestly, I know you so much better than I ever have before. And we've known each other for a while now. Right. I know you're going to wrap it up, but I'm curious. Okay. Now say that. Mm -hmm. What your perceptions were leading into this. And I want you to be brutally honest. I I don't want to hear like the nice things. Like I want to hear the things where you're like, "Eh, I kind of thought this about you. Because I certainly not always behaving in a way that's consistent with you. (laughs) (laughs) being somebody you're like, oh, that guy's really cool. Like, I mean, I have my moments. No, I mean, uh, my first ever, the first time I ever met you, I think was when I arrived for uh, high stakes poker or poker after dark. I can't remember which one came first, but I was actually getting ready to check in and at the hotel and you were checking in at the same time and you came over and said hello and you said, you know, you don't have to wait in the line. We can just go to the whatever VIP check-in. And I said, well, no, they haven't arranged that for me. I wouldn't, I, I would never <laughs> go so to a VIP check-in if I, if I wasn't supposed to, because, oh my God, what if they say, what are you doing here? And then I have to leave. That's just humiliating. Right. So, uh, <laughs> and you were like, no, no, come with me. And I just remember thinking, we have very different <laughs> ideas about life. <laughs> yeah, you're just you're so like, comfortable. You're just like, no, no, we're just going to black it. We're going to go. And I was like, uh, okay, I'll come with you. And that was it. And I just remember thinking, yeah, we have very different ideas about the way the world is. And I think you and I have extremely different backgrounds. Oh, gosh, yes. I was shocked like, to learn that you had grown up like in a farm setting in rural Canada. Yeah. Like, wait, what? She seems so cosmopolitan. And in huh. fact, I think I met you before that. Oh, really? Oh, no. It was at the World Series. It was at the World Series. When I was playing. You were playing at a table. And I think I was working as a spotter where you were supposed to go find people who were notables and check on their stacks and whatnot. And somebody came in and was like, oh, there's this girl at this table. And I was like, oh, really? And come on. The World Series was like summer camp. You were just running around (laughs) trying to find every girl you've never seen before. 
And so I went over, I think you were wearing a green, like an army green hat. Yeah. Like, I was big into hats back then. Were you? Okay. Yeah. You're, <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and your big beaming smile and you had just this friendly personality. And I came over and I said, hello, I asked you what your name was or whatever. And I don't, I don't remember beyond that, but I think that's the first time huh. I'd ever yeah, that's right. met you You're right. then. And, you know, obviously there were so few women in poker at that time. So anybody who might, you know, possibly be yeah. a story, you wanted to be like, okay, well, who's this? How many chips do they have? And like, where are they come mm-hmm. from? What's their whole deal? But yeah, and it wasn't, it didn't, nothing materialized beyond that. But, um, but then obviously when you came to play high stakes, certainly you made yeah. some, some strides between that moment and, and when you <laughs> on, on high stakes or whatever. And then, you know, now being kind of uh, colleagues, huh. right? Like, uh, yeah, and, for and sure. Business in the same capacity, so. Yeah. Absolutely. Even if you go to like um, the uh, Super High Roller Bowl, you know, working together on that, you oh, and yeah. Nick doing all the commentary. Oh, yeah. Jesse and I were on the desk, the yeah. whole, you know. Gosh. So, yeah. Good times, man. Wow. Good times. Really good times. I know. I'm looking forward to it again. You were very gentle, by the way. You had some kid gloves on with, with your answer. You're Did like, I? Oh, I remember. I just remember you going to the VIP check-in. Well, that is about the kindest oh. reframing <laughs> of your perspective. <laughs> okay. Well, well this there- douchebag. I can say one thing. I'll say one thing because it's actually from the last time we saw each other. Um, I was telling you something about, uh, oh, there's this like big poker person, um, casino owner. And I was uh, there at the casino with a whole bunch of other journalists. And then I was able to fly in in, in his helicopter. And I remember you made a joke in front of everyone in the room about the fact that I must have slept with him to be flying his helicopter. Really? You did. And I was like, dude. I was like, dude. Oh, embarrassed. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, like, no. Like, I'm all, it's almost to the point where I'm like, was that a joke that got misconstrued or was it absolutely? It might have been. It might have been. It might have been. Okay. Because I'm like, more even when it happened, I thought, and did so I happy. If I did that, I am mortified right now. That's so Oh, I didn't mean to see. I should have kept the kid gloves on. No, are you terrible. kidding me? No, I asked you for it because if, if I don't have those things drawn to my attention, then I'm liable to go and maybe Aww. do something like that again. But, you know, I'm always looking for a laugh. So of sometimes course. I like breach into the void that shouldn't be explored. Um, but yeah, For the no, record, I cool. didn't, so obviously. Oh my God. You, you must have been so like, oh, wow, Ali, thanks. That's uh, I was a little hey. taken aback, I'll be honest. But you should have been a lot taken aback. <laughs> That's hey, so I've been bad. in this industry a really long time. So oh, I know. So <laughs> it takes more fine. than that. Yeah. But honestly, throughout the years, I don't know. You and I have always gotten along. So well, I'm glad that's that kind of my overriding. Yeah. In spite of moments like the one you just described, which is really <laughs> awful. Oh, terrible. Oh, what a great way to close the podcast. I know. You're I'm like, so well, sorry. now you really know who he is. This was all BS for 50 minutes. We got down to the movie. No. No. Because honestly, this has been like the most eye-opening. And I do mean it when I say that, you know, I wish we'd had this conversation 10 years ago. And, right. and I look forward to having more conversations. Yeah, because for sure. Yeah. I think I have a tendency to be very surficial at work, um, um, just out of my own maybe discomfort sometimes because of you know my own background being very different than a lot of people, and so I don't really tend to get into the kind of the big conversations. So, well, I yeah. wonder whether or not it wouldn't uh, behoove you to make yourself a guest one time and have some yeah. 
ask you the questions and then yeah maybe i need to find someone to do it so (laughs) uh hello yeah i dude if you would do that i would take you up on that maybe that'll be your season finale when you're like okay i've done all the episodes and now i want to i want to put a cherry on top of the sunday i will come in and damn dude and let you i'm gonna take you up on it okay yeah sure i will absolutely that's a a killer idea and i'd love that yeah, and then I get to come full circle with you and be like, oh, we awesome. should have a 10 years ago. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, now I am really going to wrap hey. it up because this has been fantastic. I literally asked one question, like one of the actual well, questions. The rest, of it was, the rest of it was just us just chatting. That was amazing. But I didn't let you ask your questions. What a terrible interview subject. I, I know, right? I I had 36. I got to one, but it, no, it was definitely I a, answer them all. I know you should go and read them all. Cause they're really interesting. Well, you said definitely cool. something and, then, to do. and then I said, look, do you want me to read them or do you not want me to read them? But so see, if you'd read them, long winded answers. No, I love this. This was perfect. It's exactly what I wanted to come out of the podcast. So really, it so finally the happened. Questions would have just led us down this path anyway. And there wasn't, it might've. Okay. Wait, before you well, a lot of them you already answered. Like, Will you please a lot of them- those thirty five? Just glance over them and go. This is the one that we definitely didn't touch on at all. And I give you like a thirty second answer or something. I wanted oh, to subject myself to all of the questions, and I realized I didn't, which is so dumb. Oh. No, because you got most of them. Because like even the things about like when did you last cry in front of another person or by yourself? You told a much better story than the last time. You know, mm-hmm. like have you ever been truly terrified? Love at first sight, mm-hmm. like love and affection, like a lot of these you. You talked about them anyways, so So we didn't miss anything, man. We didn't miss anything. All right. All right. Well, thank you again for opening up. And uh, everyone who's listening, thank you so much for being on this particular journey with me because this one was not one to miss. Uh, I hope you feel like you know Ollie so much better now, not just from poker, but who he is as a person. And uh, I hope you all join me next time as well on The Heart of Poker, sponsored by 8 at 8 Poker. Mm-hmm.